0: Welcome back, everyone. Um, I'm Christopher Preble, I'm the Vice President for Defense and Foreign Policy Studies here at Cato. It's my pleasure to serve as the uh, chair, moderator, and commentator of this panel. Um, Very uh, excited for you to hear uh, these three papers. Uh, I'm gonna introduce the speakers in the order in which they'll uh, speak. Uh, First, my friend and colleague, Will Ruger. William uh, serves as the Vice President for Research and Policy at the Charles Koch Institute and the Vice President for Research at the Charles Koch Foundation. Will was previously an assistant uh, associate professor at the Department of Political Science at Texas State University. He received his PhD in politics from Brandeis and his uh, bachelor's degree from the College of William and Mary. He is a veteran of the Afghan war and an officer in the US Navy Reserve component. Uh, our second speaker, who you've already heard from today, is Ed Rhodes, um, thrilled to have Ed here, welcoming him here to, him to Cato for the first time. He's a professor of government at, uh, and international affairs at George Mason University, uh, and he received his bachelor's degree from Harvard and uh, MPA and PhD at Princeton. And then our third speaker today, the organizer of this grand affair, for which we would not all be here, him and Ben Friedman, Trevor Thrall, of course, his senior fellow here at Cato, uh, he is also an associate professor at George Mason University School of Policy, Government, and International Affairs. Uh, prior to arriving at George Mason, Trevor was an associate professor at the University of Michigan Dearborn, where he directed the Master's of Public Policy and Master of Public Administration programs. And he, like several people here, received his PhD in political science from MIT. So, with that, we'll take it away. <clears throat> Great, thanks, Chris, and uh, thank you to the Cato Institute
1: for having me here. Uh, it's pretty exciting to see, you know, Cato getting involved and uh, really drawing a great audience. So thank you very much. Um, my talk is titled "U.S. Foreign Policy from the Founding to the Spanish-American War," uh, so kind of going back in history here. Um, and let me set that up a little bit first. In the post-Cold War era. The United States has been, for good or for bad, a dangerous nation, Uh, a word that Robert Kagan uses uh, where he's paraphrasing from John Quincy Adams, uh, talking about how the rest of the world might view the United States at some point. And why do I say it's been a dangerous nation since the end of the Cold War? Well, it's toppled directly or indirectly regimes in Afghanistan, Iraq, and Libya. It's fought two wars in the Balkans, that helped reshape the boundaries and politics of that region. It's intervened in places like Somalia and Haiti. It's expanded the US-dominated NATO alliance into Russia's front yard and up to its doorstep. It's promoted social movements and insurgencies in some places while supporting repression of the same in others. And it's frequently sent military forces around the globe to try to shape events to its liking. Now, the US, U.S.'s approach to the world has not only posed a danger to others, it's also posed a danger to itself. Uh, the nation has spent trillions of dollars and nearly 7,000 lives in Afghanistan and Iraq alone, with limited or even negative impacts on American interests. That even leaves aside the 50,000-plus uh, wounded and nearly, 100, sorry, nearly a million uh, veterans who have filed disability claims from those two wars. Uh, so even bracketing the war costs, the U.S. defense budget has eaten up hundreds of billions of dollars each year, contributing to its fiscal woes, and thanks to its treaty obligations, the U.S. is on the hook to defend 68 other countries whose own contribution to American safety is marginal at best. Now, an increasingly number of increasing number of people, including significant leaks, elites like my colleagues who have spoken here today, are questioning whether this active approach is working to secure American national interests. They look at the last 25 years of a grand strategy called primacy or liberal hegemonialism, as you've heard, or deep engagement, and they see little or even negative returns on investment. But they also may ask whether there's actually any solid alternative to the status quo, especially because from left to right, Democrats and Republicans, you've seen this consensus, you've seen this inside the 48-yard line discussion here in Washington. So primacy seems to be, or must be, to a lot of people, that must be obviously the right answer. But there are experts, many of whom are outside the Beltway and in academia, and a few, like the Cato Institute, inside the Beltway, who have been uncomfortable with the status quo for some time. They would suggest grand strategies more orthogonal to what we've been seeing since the end of the Cold War. This includes offshore balancers who focus on preventing regional hegemons in the major power centers of the world. It also includes more serious challengers to the status quo, who first coined the term restraint. This variant isn't isolationism by any means. And you've heard the term neo-isolationism used to describe restraint. And I think that's a a, a misnomer, um, if not a smear in many cases. But it is more sanguine, this approach, more sanguine about America's security environment than the offshore balancers uh, and the primacists, um, and less supportive of more active efforts to promote balancing. Now, regardless of of these differences, the anti-primacists, if you will, favor a more realist-inspired foreign policy focused on securing America's vital interests rather than altruistic or idealistic ends. Uh, They also want to have greater discrimination around the use of force, and want to limit or even end US commitments abroad. Now, unfortunately for a lot of non-experts who may be unsatisfied with the status quo and wonder if another strategy might secure our nation better, they don't have a lot of frame of reference for alternatives. Um, Primacy is all they know, given the US has been following this approach for at least the last 25 years, if not since 1950 or even 1898. So what I'm trying to do in this paper is to show that a more restrained approach Uh, Rather than being something foreign, exotic, idealistic, or untested, is in fact a very American approach to foreign policy, and one that has deep, deep roots in American ideals and history. Now, whether restraint today is a wise strategy, I'm not here to talk about. I'll leave that to others to debate. But as this paper will make clear, the critics of restraint certainly cannot claim it would be unprecedented, unrealistic, or un-American, given this history. So I'm going to talk about the founders' approach to U.S. foreign policy and talk about how, despite there always being tension in American history, the liberal interventionists have always been with us. This chapter will argue that the founders held a particular vision about foreign policy very similar to modern-day conceptions of restraint, and that it dominated U.S. foreign policy uh, thinking and behavior from Washington's time until at least the Spanish-American War. Okay, so what did the founders think? Um, Well, according to the consensus view of historians of the history of U.S. foreign policy, the founders and those who followed them conceived of and pursued a foreign policy with two main pillars, two main pillars. The first of these uh, is strategic independence, oftentimes talked about as neutrality or non-entanglement. So that's the first pillar. The second is military non-interventionism. Now, this traditional vision guided, like I said, American foreign policy for more than a century. Um, And uh, in a lot of the historical treatments, just like you've heard sometimes today, they call this approach isolationism. But I think it's important to touch on that briefly because historians like Selig Adler, who have written about isolationism with isolationism in the title of his works, they have admitted that, quote, American isolationism has never meant total social, cultural, and economic self-sufficiency, such a concept has had few rational advocates, and the very idea is nullified by the history of the United States. In other words, the isolationists weren't actually isolationists, but we're going to keep using that word. Um, So it's actually not very descriptive from a kind of scientific or historical sense. So it's best that we probably dispatch with that. Um, Let me say a little bit more about the two pillars. Um, So in terms of the strategic independence pillar, um, there's a real emphasis, again, on this notion that the United States needs to be disentangled from the old world. And it was Jefferson who coined the phrase entangling alliance, but really Washington's farewell address where he discusses the danger of connections is really the touchstone for leaders throughout the period. Um, But it's important to recognize that just by talking about avoiding commitment, it didn't mean that the founders were mere unilateralists, because that would suggest that the founders' approach would be compatible with some modern variants of neoconservatism today. Um, Because a lot of neoconservatives have a penchant for going it alone or seeing multilateral institutions and their member states as either barriers to American interests or, at worst, uh, auxiliaries to the accomplishment of U.S. goals. But the founders weren't just worried about those entanglements, they were also wanted, they also wanted to stay out of old world fights. So that second pillar is also critical, which is to avoid overseas wars and becoming enmeshed in the power politics of the old war. That's why the United States for much of its history until the 20th century did not really go outside of the Western Hemisphere all that much except for trade. And when they did go abroad, like with the fights with the Barbary pirates, it was mostly about protecting trade and did not involve fighting long land wars in places far from our shores. And I think that comparison with the post-1898 period uh, almost proves the point alone. Now, the most important exemplars of this approach, and indeed the views that inform it, are Thomas Paine's common sense, George Washington's farewell address, and John Quincy Adams' July 4th, 1821 address. Now, a lot of people would turn to Washington, Hamilton, Adams, or Jefferson first to kind of flesh out the founders' views. I really think we have to stop and talk about Thomas Paine. Um, Paine was important, really, for laying the major kind of foundations of even what Washington and others talked about, and and sometimes he's forgotten. Um, You know, historian... um, Felix Gilbert, he goes so far as to conclude that for a long time, every utterance on foreign policy starts from Payne's words and echoes his thoughts. And he conveyed a, a, a sense, uh, a kind of strain of British thinking about Britain's own relationship with the continent. He stressed that and then applied it to the difference between the new world and the old world. So what does he say in common sense? Um, He says that essentially there is not, quote, a single advantage derived from connection with Britain. And it wasn't just connection with Britain that worried him. It was also any political connection whatsoever to the old world. He said, as America is our market, sorry, as Europe is our market for trade, we ought to form no partial connection with any part of it. It is the true interest of America to steer clear of European contentions which she never can do, while by her dependence on Britain, she is made the make-weight in the scale of British politics. Um, another key element of Payne's view was the importance of that geographic advantage that the United States had and the sanctuary that distance allowed. So he talked a lot about that distance, about how far the United States was from Europe, um, you, t- you hear him talking about uh, kind of planets and satellites, which really showed that kind of sense of distance you had between the America he hoped for and that old world. But this notion of a sanctuary is important too, because it touches upon some of those notions you see in John Winthrop about a kind of city upon a hill. So he talked about how the in Americas, we could prepare in time an asylum for mankind, right? Something separated from the old world corruption that you had seen with practicing of power politics between these monarchies. Now again, like good classical liberals uh, around him, Paine also stressed the importance of trade, not just for prosperity, but for America's security. So he noted, he said, our plan is commerce, and that well attended to will secure us the peace and friendship of all Europe, because it is the interest of all Europe to have America a free port. Her trade will always be a protection, And her barrenness of gold and silver secure her from invaders." Now, Paine sets this up in 1776. uh, And the United States, at that point, as we all know, uh, is thrust into this great conflagration with the old mother country. And so as the United States is is trying, or sorry, the incipient United States, uh, future United States, is really trying to establish itself as an independent country. Uh, it faces these exigencies of warfare, and it really wants to stay The founders really wanted to stay disconnected, right? They had subscribed to that to Payne's conception, but they found it impossible in the short run. So they did conclude an alliance with France, as we all know, and France was critical to U.S. success in the Revolutionary War. But they soon, as they, as they achieved their independence, they soon faced a problem inherent in such a relationship, which is what do you do when your interests and your allies diverge? And so there was a huge debate at the beginning of our country's history around what to do now. And as you know, ultimately through the proclamation of neutrality and then with the farewell address, the United States essentially breaks the treaty with France. It's not officially uh, dissolved until 1800, but they break it unilaterally, uh, which shows you that states don't have permanent friends, they have permanent interests. And the founders were hyper-realist when it came to that. So there's this big debate in Washington's first administration around that. It helps set up uh, the first party system in America. It's where parties come from despite uh, them not really being mentioned uh, earlier in like the Federalist Papers where they talk just about factions. Um, And uh, what happens is that you have this debate and Washington is trying to cool this debate. And he gives this farewell address and he tries to lay out what America's approach to the world should be and and to kind of heal some of those wounds in his own administration. And so he counseled the future Americans to beware emotional and political ties with foreign powers. So he talked about the problem of excessive partiality for any one nation and excessive dislike of any other. Um, he talked about how you have to have a kind of great rule of your, of your administration or of your, of your foreign policy. It has to be the North Star. He said the great rule of conduct for us in regards to foreign nations it is in extending our commercial relations, in extending our commercial relations, to have with them as little political connection as possible. Okay. Um, and he worried that it would be folly in one nation to look for disinterested favors for for another; that it must pay with a portion of, in, of its independence for whatever it may accept under that character. So again, a deep concern about political connection. And he asked us, like, why would you actually want to quit? these advantages that we had, and that's really doubled down upon by John Quincy Adams later. And he says, really, our true policy is to steer clear of permanent alliances with any portion of the foreign world. Now, I think it's important, uh, it, it's we can't really overstate the importance of the farewell address. Um, the way I'd like to think of it, or think we can think of it today, is if you think about Social Security being the third rail of American politics, it's often called that, this political connection, And going overseas and fighting in foreign wars was really the third rail of 19th century American politics. Politicians after this harken back to Washington's farewell address consistently and talk about our great rule. They talk about our traditional approach. Um, And so it's kind of amazing how few calls there are for the United States to go beyond the old world. That waits till the 1880s, 1890s. Now, Adams and Jefferson both follow Washington's advice. Uh, Jefferson, of course, being a great uh, turner of phrases, talks about uh, peace, commerce, and friendship with all nations, and tangling alliances with none, and he, he kind of walked the walk on that. But then you have about uh, you know, 20 years later, you have a threat of the United States to get involved in the Greek independence movement, and John Quincy Adams quickly shuts that down with his famous address that really kind of um, uh, hardens Washington's approach to the world. And again, after this, you really have a lot less of this kind of struggle about what the United States should do for the cause of liberty abro- abroad. Um, and what Quincy Adams says, he says, and I'll, I'll quote directly because it's such, so beautiful. He says, wherever the standard of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be but she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all. She is the champion and vindicator only of her own." Right? So that the United States should only fight for its national interests, narrowly defined, and to do otherwise would jeopardize our interests and our values. Now, he was sympathetic to the good cause of others, but he feared that the consequences of intervention on American interests Uh, would not be able to uh, justify the expense. He thought that if we enlisted under other banners than our own, that we would become a dictatist to the world, that we would sacrifice liberty for force. And so he really stressed this notion of avoiding military engagement overseas to the notion that Washington had stressed most, which was the political connections. And so you get these two great pillars Now, the historical record shows that from Adams to 1898, when the Spanish-American War takes place, that the U.S. did pursue a policy generally in line with these two pillars. That didn't mean that the United States uh, failed to defend its territory or its rights when possible, but again, it it avoided those land wars outside of the Western Hemisphere. According to the Congressional Research Service, from 1798 to the Spanish-American War, the U.S. deployed force abroad only about 100 times, and that includes all the really minor things. This, this would be, you know, uh, defending a diplomatic post with a few Marines. Um, this would be a show of force, right? A lot of these are terribly minor. In fact, if you look at this period and compare it to the next, not only are there just many more pages or on your screen, a lot more scrolling to do, um, but just the nature of these is so different. Um, you know, so even if you think about minor things like Lebanon, uh, not so minor for 283 marines, but relatively minor in the scale of things, even that compares you know, uh, so, so differently the, uh, to, the, to that period before. Um, now, it also is worth noting, though, that on, especially in light of Robert Kagan's argument about the dangerous nation – that expansion on the continent did not violate the founders' vision. So you can't use it as a, a kind of theory infirming uh, you know, example, the fact that the United States fought wars with Native American uh, polities here uh, on the continent or fought in the, with Mexico in the Mexican-American War. Right? That was not a violation of the great rule, right? Because the idea was you're gonna defend your rights and liberties here, provide for American security, have a strong national defense or as strong as you needed, and then we could, exp- we could kind of perfect our experiment in liberty and democracy at home. <sighs> now, I think one interesting data point on the t- that, that I think is worth you know, putting out here is that from 1793 until the creation of NATO in 1949, the United States did not enter a single permanent peacetime alliance. That's according to the US State Department itself. That's pretty dramatic. Now, maybe that's not the right policy in all periods, but it does show you that there's a break between that earlier tradition and the one we have today. Uh, now, I'm going to just conclude here. Uh, I think it's really noteworthy to look, especially at the Gilded Age presidents, to see really the kind of, as as one historian has called it, the kind of heyday of the great rule. Uh, because you basically don't have a lot of knowledge probably about these presidents because, They just don't do very much in international affairs, and the way you get your face on Mount Rushmore generally or in the kind of pantheon of presidents is is you you fight a war. Um, So you don't really know that much, but for example, Grover Cleveland basically did nothing in his first administration. In fact, at the beginning of his second administration, he prevented the annexation of Hawaii, uh, which we consider, of course, as part of the United States today, but that's how thoroughgoing his response was to this notion we ought to stick to Washington's great rule. Um, But I will say this uh, in closing, the founders exemplified a mindset and followed policies that were consistent with the arguments of realist restrainers today. As the late Eric Nordlinger argued in a great book he wrote before he passed, he said, he said, uh, the policy in this period was the product of a studied appreciation of the fit between American interests and international realities. Um, That being said, the U.S. also had idealistic reasons for pursuing non-interventionism and non-entanglement. We see that come through in Washington and Adams and Payne's comments. There wasn't just realism, there was also idealism behind it. They thought that war and political connection would harm our experiment in liberty and democracy. So their approach in terms of non-interventionism and in terms of non-entanglement was that this would be consistent with our security arrangements because of our ability to be a, have a sanctuary for mankind in America, given our two big oceans, given the fact that we had weak neighbors, that we could become the sanctuary, but that would be good not only for our security, but for our commitment to liberalism. So in reality, that period was realism in the service of liberal ends. So there is a American tradition that restrainers today are falling back upon. This is not non-traditional, it's not uh, something that was unprecedented, It's something that they can harken back to. Now, the question is is whether the security conditions today, given the threats and the nature of today's technology, are sufficient to allow for a return to that traditional approach. And that, I think, is a case that other people have tried to make today and will this afternoon. So thank you very much.
2: Well, Will and I are tag teaming you on history. Um, I'm picking up some of the historical story where Will left off, uh, looking at beginning with the, the golden age that both Will and I see for restraint, that period from the founders through the 1890s. My task, though, is to try and figure out why we left that golden age. Why was it that the progressives in the 1890s saw the need for the United States to move on to the world stage, to begin to engage uh, abroad, to begin to send U.S. forces abroad in a new and more dramatic way. My problem, my first problem though is that in studying great political thought as thought by great writers, I can't do better than these gentlemen did themselves. So whenever I try and paraphrase, Will, you did a great job paraphrasing, but I can't paraphrase nearly as well as the arguments were presented at the time. So what I want to start by doing is starting with the argument that Will laid out for you and put that side by side with the argument that was made in the 1890s. And to do this, I'm going to use the words of the people at the time. I want to pick up with John Quincy Adams. If you haven't read John Quincy Adams's 1821 Fourth of July speech, it's a must read. It is an extraordinary study in political philosophy, in American history. Uh, It's a great document. Obviously, John Quincy Adams was not a great president, but he was, by most accounts, the greatest Secretary of State that the United States ever had. And he was an extraordinary political philosopher as well. So, this is an extraordinary attempt. in this document to link America's fundamental values with a strategy that would protect those values. So, John Quincy Adams first. Wherever the standard of freedom, of, of freedom and independence has been or shall be unfurled, there will her heart, her benedictions, and her prayers be. But she goes not abroad in search of monsters to destroy. She is the well-wisher to the freedom and independence of all, she is the champion and vindicator only of her own. She well knows that by once enlisting under other banners than her own, were they even the banners of foreign independence, she would involve herself beyond the power of extrication in all the wars of interest and intrigue, of individual avarice, envy, and ambition, which assume the colors and usurp the standard of freedom. The fundamental maxim of her policy would insensibly change from liberty to force. The frontlet on her brows would no longer beam with the ineffable splendor of freedom and independence, but in its stead would soon be be substituted an imperial diadem flashing in false and tarnished luster the murky radiance of dominion and power. She might become the dictatress of the world. She would no longer be the ruler of her own spirit. It's a statement of classical liberal thought. For John Quincy Adams, you could not become involved in the balance of power politics that were going on in the old world without becoming like the old world. In the old world, it was a period of essentially constant, well, that's an exaggeration. England was only involved in war one year out of two in the period between uh, 1648 and the American Revolution but it was a period of essentially constant ongoing war, a period in which the states of Europe had to organize themselves, centralize authority, build up regulations that controlled individual behavior, that controlled the economy, in order to maintain military forces that would allow them to survive in this constant struggle. And for Washington and for Hamilton and for John Quincy Adams, there is the realization that if we walk down that path, if we become involved politically and militarily in that world system, we have to become like that system in order to survive. So the only way to preserve our liberal essence, the only way to actually develop a novus ordo seclorum, a new order for the ages, is actually to remain politically and militarily separate. Economically, culturally involved, yes, absolutely. Liberalism demanded it, our economy demanded it, but politically and militarily separate. Now let's jump to 1899, and let's jump to Theodore Roosevelt. Now we're getting to a face on Mount Rushmore. Uh, here's what Roosevelt says, and compare this to uh, Quincy Adams's concern about getting a diadem of false and murky power on our heads. Here's what Roosevelt says. We of this generation do not have to face a task such as that of our father's face such as that our fathers faced. But we have our tasks, and woe to us if we fail to perform them. We cannot, if we would, play the part of China and be content to rot by inches in ignoble ease within our borders, taking no interest in what goes on beyond them, sunk in a scrambling commercialism, heedless of the higher life, the life of aspiration, of toil and risk, busying ourselves only with the wants of our bodies for the day, until suddenly we should find, beyond a shadow of question, what China has already found. That in this world, the nation that has trained itself to a career of unwarlike and isolated ease is bound in the end to go down before other nations which have not lost the manly and adventurous qualities. If we are to be a really great people, we must strive in good faith to play a great part in the world. The timid man, the lazy man, the man who distrusts his own country, the over-civilized man who has lost the great fighting, masterful virtues, the ignorant man, the man of dull mind whose soul is incapable of feeling the mighty lift that thrills stern men with empires in their brains. All of these, of course, shrink from seeing us build a navy and an army adequate to our needs. They shrink from seeing us do our share of the world's work by bringing order out of chaos in the great fair tropic islands from which the valor of our soldiers and sailors have driven the Spanish flag. These are the men who fear the strenuous life, who fear the only national life which is really worth leading. For Roosevelt, if we do not move onto the world stage, if we do not find the challenge that's posed by conquest and dominion In the greater world, we will lose our own souls. What's going on here? Is Roosevelt disagreeing with Washington and Hamilton and John Quincy Adams? No, these men are his heroes. Washington, Hamilton, John Quincy Adams, he writes about them, about how wonderful, how heroic they are, how they they led America into greatness. Theodore Roosevelt is not abandoning the earlier policies. He's not abandoning the ideas of classic liberalism. He does not walk away from the notion that America has to base its policies on the ideas of liberalism that suggest each human being is their own property. And therefore, God and the creator have given them individual liberties, and the government's sole purpose is to protect those liberties, allow those individuals to enjoy those liberties. He doesn't doubt that. But what is clear to Roosevelt, and it may not be clear to us, and I'm not saying Roosevelt was right, but what's clear to Roosevelt is that liberalism unbalanced or unlinked by a healthy connection to republicanism is going to be disastrous. What Roosevelt sees in the 1890s is an America whose moral virtues are collapsing. He sees an America, and again, we don't study enough history in this country, 1890s, America is ripping itself to pieces in a way that is unusual in our history. Blood is flowing in the streets. Uh, people are being shot down to a much greater scale than during the Vietnam War. The rioting, the protests, America is ripping itself apart. America is undergoing a huge social and cultural transformation associated with industrialization, urbanization, the end of Reconstruction. Uh, attempts to reincorporate the the South into our body politic and to deal with the African-American question, mass immigration into this country by people who are coming from a different political tradition. America is being ripped apart between urban and rural, old Americans, new Americans. And worst, from Roosevelt's point of view, is that this process of urbanization is removing the challenge from American life, the challenge of the frontier, the challenge of going out and working with your hands, working in a small community, the way the New England communities established themselves in Puritan days, working together in a small rural community, uh, building things with your hands, testing yourself against nature, relying on others in your community and having them rely on you. Those virtues, Roosevelt felt, were essential to balance the liberal virtues which were giving us our prosperity. Unchecked liberalism, Roosevelt uh, believed from the period of the Civil War until the 1890s was resulting in moral decay, a weak and flabby America physically and also morally and intellectually. And Roosevelt is convinced that unless we can find a way to reverse this, America will destroy itself. The challenge that Roosevelt sees in the 1890s is not an external challenge. And this is something many historians miss. In order to explain americans move on to the world stage they try to find some sort of economic threat abroad or some sort of military threat abroad there is none america is more secure in the 1890s than it ever was before or since for a variety of technological reasons economically america yes we're on a boom and bust cycle but america does is well positioned economically and in fact Both capital and labor in America are against any change in the traditional policy. Capital and labor are for avoiding international entanglements. But Roosevelt and the progressive liberals say, we need to go abroad. We need to go abroad because America is not just based on liberalism. It's also based simultaneously on republicanism. It's not simply that Americans believe that every human being is born with natural rights. But it's also that Americans believe that for a human being to be fully achieved, for you or I or for anyone to be a complete human being, we have to live not simply a physical life, we need food and water, and not simply a social life, we need to have family and friends to be more than an empty shell. But to be human, to be more than an animal, we also have to lead a political life That is we have to participate in a political community in order for us to develop those virtues, in Latin, vertu, in order to develop the vertu that raises us among above animals and that allows us simultaneously the capacity for self-governance. Without vertu, without virtue, without the ability to control ourselves, without our ability to think for the future, without an, a willingness to sacrifice our self-interest for the good of the community as a whole, without this ability to work this way. Human beings are not full human beings. And this, Roosevelt says, requires participating in the body politic, but it also requires this development of human capacity. And for Roosevelt and for the progressives, this capacity has to be developed through exercise, physical exercise, but challenges to the soul, to the spirit, as well as to the body. For Roosevelt, he looks back in history, and he says, there are two places this has come from. This has come from our challenge from nature, from our going abroad to, to deal with, or excuse me, staying at home and dealing with, well, Roosevelt himself ranches. He shoots a big game in Africa. He goes to the, the head of the Amazon River and searches for its sources. He's able to find the physical challenges, but he recognizes for the new urban Americans, whether they're rich or they're poor, they're becoming flabby. The other great source of this kind of bonding, this kind of human development, this kind of purification of the soul comes from war. And so for Roosevelt, it becomes necessary to go abroad. I promise, just one more quote. Here's what Roosevelt says in one of his great speeches, his speech that's entitled, The Strenuous Life. He says, England's rule in India and Egypt has been of great benefit to England. For it has trained up a generation of men accustomed to look at the larger and loftier side of public life. It has been of even greater benefit to India and Egypt, and finally, and most of all, it has advanced the cause of civilization. So if we do our duty aright in the Philippines, we will add to that national renown, which is the highest and finest part of national life. We will greatly benefit the people of the Philippine Islands, and above all, we will play our part well in the great uplifting of mankind. Roosevelt needs to have crusades. Roosevelt needs to go abroad to find those monsters in order to create a Republican America. I've run over time, as I'm being warned. (laughs) One last thing I want to say, though. This is not just about Teddy Roosevelt. If you want an interesting comparison, take a look at what was happening in the early 1960s. Take a look at John F. Kennedy's inauguration speech his famous speech and lay it down side by side with theodore roosevelt both of them are worried about a declining american virtue the loss of republican virtue and both of them are looking abroad for challenges that america can pursue in order to preserve itself sorry
3: Wow, it's kind of tough to follow the Founding Fathers. (laughs) I feel like maybe I should have written my talk in iambic pentameter or something. (laughs) I I have no soaring rhetoric for you, I'm sorry. Just charts. Yeah, uh, oh, man. All right, are we Uh, harder, no? It's uh, there, There, but it's not, yeah. Oh, wait,
0: he's coming, he's helping. Uh, There we go. all right, all right,
3: good. Yeah, we knew that part. All right. Okay. Um, All right. Teddy Roosevelt did not have power. No, no. He didn't have to worry about such things. Um, Okay. So now for something completely different. Um, (laughs) Sorry about the. This is a bit of a Frankenstein panel, I guess. Although I I really like the intro here uh, because my chapter, while the other chapters in this volume uh, look at uh, the the problems with primacy and and liberal hegemony uh, or... Uh, Look at the many benefits of a potential strategy of restraint my chapter uh, Asks the extremely pragmatic question uh, Will the public support a president if he or she Decided good Lord willing to pursue a policy of restraint are there enough Restrainers out there among you uh, to make it possible for a president to resist the uh, temptations uh, and pressures that encourage intervention and, you know, while we're at it, who, who might these restrainers be anyway? Um, and so in taking up these questions, my chapter will make three arguments. The first is that the restraint constituency, as I like to think of it, is larger and more politically diverse than most people would imagine. Second, uh, in view of public behavior and historical polling data, I think we can consider the public, um, to coin a phrase that, again, I'll, I'll take um, better uh offers, but I'm going to call the public reasonably restrained. Um, it's, it, the public defaults, I think, towards caution and prudence, uh, but shows a persistent susceptibility to elite manipulation. And so unfortunately, um, in the ebb and flow of, of things, although it's possible politically for a president to build support for a policy of restraint, it is also unfortunately possible for a president to build support for its opposite. Uh, And finally, uh, to end on an up note, I'm going to argue that um, thanks to mostly fatigue from failure in the Middle East for the last 15 years, the American public expresses more support for restraint today than ever in the history of polling. Um, And yet even so, uh, I'm going to argue that the political heft of the restraint constituency is only going to grow as our uh, oldest and most hawkish Americans depart this mortal coil See, I got a little Shakespeare in there, Um, and and are replaced by um, the millennial generation, who, um, as I will note in my final slide, are are going to be um, this country's most restrained uh, Americans. So the analytical approach of my chapter was very straightforward. Uh, I scoured the universe for surveys that asked questions that would allow us to measure people's support for the basic principles, the pillars, many of which you've heard discussed today, of the restraint camp or the restraint paradigm. And I then uh, identified the restraint constituency by, you know, doing math on the the polling data and categorizing people into various attitude clusters uh, based on how they answered these these questions. And then to validate this approach and to see whether this categorization really made sense, um, I then looked at how well these categories helped us predict people's actual opinions on specific foreign policy questions. And so today I think already, and, and I think Charlie Glazer's, Um, piece on this was was really good. There are many shades of restraint. There are a lot of nuance. It's it's a big tent. Uh, You can't necessarily say it's just one thing. Um, But let me tell you, when you're using polling data to study something as complex as the notion of restraint, uh, you need to keep things a bit simpler. Um, Not least of which uh, is because the average American does not carry around a fully fledged theory of IR and US foreign policy in their heads. And so it wouldn't make sense to go trying to measure that, would it? Um, So... For our purposes today, I'm going to argue that you can understand support for restraint uh, as being primarily the function of two fundamental beliefs about how the world or the US should work in the world. The first is that the belief is the belief that the United States should not attempt to solve all the world's problems. I think that's pretty fundamental to the restraint uh, concept. And the second is the belief that the United States should be very judicious about when and where to use military force uh, to solve problems. I don't think we'll get much argument from restrainers on those two. Um, okay, now, in, in surveying the landscape, and, and somebody who wants to hear me complain during question and answer can ask me why you only found two surveys that let you do this adequately. Um, that's because most people don't study restraint. Um, but anyways, I, I will, this will talk will now rely on the two surveys that allow you to do this in a reasonable manner. And um, I'm just gonna walk you through how I did this categorization with one of these two. The the two, by the way, are a CNN poll and the Chicago Council on Global Affairs poll, both from 2014. So, all right, this is the CNN poll right here. And the first question that they asked that's gonna help us identify the restraint constituency is, do you think the United States should or should not take the leading role among all other countries in trying to solve in the world in trying to solve international problems. And as you see here, about 40% of the public thinks we should. And about 60% say we should not. And second question, if you had to choose, would you describe yourself as a hawk, that is, someone who believes that military force should be used frequently to promote US policy, or as more of a dove, that is, someone who believes the United States should rarely or never use military force? So almost halfsies here. Forty-five percent say hawk, fifty percent say dove. I'm still trying to find the other five percent. Uh, but the magic then happens when we sort of you know cross-hatch these things and then are able to categorize people. Uh, in, oops. Yes, into um, our, our four buckets here, and and thus able to identify what I call the restraint constituency. And that is, I think obviously, people who say they are, they see themselves as a dove, someone who thinks we should rarely or never use military force, and someone who answered that the United States should not take the lead among all nations in solving the world's problems. Um, And so you can see, uh, the first thing I want you to see is that they're the biggest group. They're the biggest block on the block. Uh, The two different surveys come in pretty close to each other, 37, 42%. You know, their nemesis in the lower left is what I call the interventionist constituency, the hawks who want to use military force and want to take the lead in solving all the world's problems. They're somewhere around 25. Um, So two things. First, restraint constituency, biggest block. Yay. Um, But the bad news is that nobody here is a majority. And that's, right, so that's a call for competition. So that means that on any given policy issue, we have a jump ball where if you assume the restrainers are going to restrain and the interventionists are going to support intervention, then what the majority is really going to say depends on what the people in the middle, these other two blocks, what they say. And so we'll we'll come back to that as we go. All right, and then the next thing we need to do is to to say, all right, I have these four pretty categories, but are they any different from each other, or is this just magic? Um, And the answer is I think they are different from each other. And so our first bit of validation comes from the CNN poll that we just looked at, and these are three different questions about U.S. intervention in Syria to confront ISIS. Um, And this is from September 2014, so these numbers are actually probably a little higher than they would be today because this was right after people got very scared about ISIS. Um, And as, you know, one would expect, the restrainers in this group, the blue bar on the left, show the least support for each of the three different uh, types of intervention. They're somewhere between 27 percentage points and 43 percentage points lower in support than their interventionist constituency. And then the other two groups hiding out as they (coughs) often do in between, right? And so... Um, You know, as I said, where where these middle two groups is, is where the country's going to go. In the case of the airstrikes, a majority of the middle two groups supports airstrikes. And so you have a comfortable majority of Americans, 73% in this case, who support airstrikes. But in the other two cases, training and arming the rebels and sending U.S. ground troops, um, a majority of the middle two groups says, no, thank you. They join the restrainers in that way. Uh, And so you get a majority of Americans in both those cases who say, no, thank you. Uh, Even though you'll notice, in each of the three cases, the interventionist constituency says, sign me up, let's go do it. All right, and then borrowing um, more uh, questions from the Chicago Council survey this time. uh, And and by the way, again, sort of getting down into the weeds, but the, the two questions used to measure and identify the restraint constituency for this survey are a little bit different. So you get a little bit different answers. Um, Good enough for government work, or I guess nonprofit work. (laughs) Not government work, sorry, no, no. Uh, All right, so in this case, we see um, 21 different, uh, well, 19 hypothetical and two actual uh, cases of the use of force. I I tucked in uh, Afghanistan and Iraq, were they worth it uh, questions. The rest are all hypothetical questions, more or less. Um, Would you support, or uh, I guess a couple of them are, do you support, or would you support? Anyway, here, across the full range, the restraint constituency averages about 24% uh, lower support uh, than the interventionist constituency. And from a kind of a practical political uh, standpoint, with sort of 50% being a magic number in D.C., um, if you're careful, if you look carefully, uh, the restraint constituency expresses majority support in just five of the 21 cases. And the restraint, I'm sorry, the interventionist constituency supports 16 of 21 with a majority. And so there, there's a big difference if you categorize someone as a restrainer from an interventionist using this uh, measure. Uh, okay, so it's it's pretty big, the restraint constituency. Um, and I also argued that it's politically more diverse than you might imagine. I, I, I was surprised, uh, maybe you are too, to find out that Republicans are actually slightly more likely to be restrainers than interventionists uh, in this uh, framework. Um, Now, Democrats and independents are even more likely to be restrainers, uh, but it's still the case that, um, if you flip this on its head, almost a quarter of restrainers are Republicans. And so this is not an issue where a president could not imagine support from both sides of the aisle. In fact, in almost every case, if you dig through the polling, you do get support, uh, no matter who the president is, no matter what the case is, from Democrats and Republicans, not to mention interventionists. Okay, so we know there are a lot of them. We know they come from across the political spectrum. What else can we say about who they are? Um, and to do that, um, I, I ran the usual regression analysis to identify the various demographic correlates and uh, other things that uh, would, you know, go along with support for our principles of restraint. But in order to spare you from having to look at an ugly table of regression results, I used a new uh, piece of software that translates regression results into human form. LAUGHTER if you don't, for those of you who don't get the meme, mostly because you're too old, just Google not impressed meme, and you'll, you'll quickly understand w- what this is about. Anyway, a, key, a few key things about restrainers. Um, number one, they're more likely to be young than old. Um, we'll talk more about that in a minute. Uh, the second thing is they're much less likely to think that the United States is the greatest country on earth than non-restrainers. So that's, Barry talked about the power of nationalism and identity. <clears throat> I think that is uh, what we're seeing here. Uh, they're also uh, less likely to perceive a wide range of critical threats to U.S. national security out in the world. And I think that's something that you've heard from pretty much every speaker or panel at least uh, so far today, that um, the U.S., you know, restrainers believe the U.S. enjoys a great deal of security. And so that's true of restrainers in our survey as well. And no surprise, as you just saw from the other slide, uh, they are, in fact, more liberal um, uh, than uh, non-restrainers. Now, a couple of things you didn't just hear me say. Uh, they're not more likely to be female. They're not more likely to be poor, or on the other hand, well-educated, uh, or non-white. Um, none of those variables were statistically significant in our in our regression, and that's interesting because we we probably would have expected that since we know that all those variables correlate very closely in terms of partisanship, which party do you belong to, which president do you support, and sort of the tumble-bumble of real-world politics. And you know, in particular, we know that there is a persistent gender gap uh, in terms of support for war or military action. Men, six to 10 to 12 points higher than women on almost any question you ask it under any circumstances. So I, I put Michaela up here because she's a woman and she, they support restraint more even though I couldn't find it in the regression. Um, okay, so you're fine, Trav, there's lots of um They're all over the place. Um, but come on, I read the papers, the public buys into some pretty dumb stuff. Uh, how restrained is the public really when it gets down to it? Um, eh, the answer is um, more often than not, but not always. Eh, that's the best I can do for you. Um, so I'm gonna call them, until i come up with a better phrase, uh, reasonably restrained. And um, you know, so in the favor of the restraint argument, uh, on the one hand, it is very difficult to get the public to support The serious use of military force for things that don't—that they do not think directly affect U.S. national security, as my pretty color-coded chart came out pretty good shows—you get majority support for major gross violations of of human rights, genocide, and I think the other question says human rights catastrophe or something like that. Um, So you get that. You get majority support for counterterrorism, and again, this is this survey is taken in 2014 when concerns about terrorism are pretty high, and Americans think. You know, reasonably, that those are direct threats to the United States. Uh, and uh, in a couple of questions that will prevent Iran, a country that most people really, really loathe, uh, from getting nuclear weapons. Th- those are all pretty reasonable things to support some kind of the use of force for. Um, but those are the only things that you can see a majority uh, support for the use of force for. Things like defending our allies. We, we talked a lot about Taiwan earlier today. Nah, no thanks. South Korea, no. Ukraine, no. Latvia, ba- all the Baltics, the NATO expansion. No, none of that gets the public needle moving. So on that score, it looks like the public is pretty prudent, to borrow Bruce Gentelson's words, or to rephrase, for our purposes, reasonably restrained. Um, on the other hand, uh, as I mentioned, the, the public remains susceptible to presidential manipulation. Um, by maneuvering the U.S. into crises, Uh, Presidents can often trigger rally effects, so temporary majorities based on, hey, it's us against them, even though if you'd asked me two weeks ago, I would have said that was a dumb idea, but hey, now we're into it, we got to win. Presidents are also sometimes able to inflate threats and convince people that things are threats when they really aren't, uh, or to exaggerate how threatening things are, and I think the conversation about terrorism is a good example of that. Uh, and so when you do that, you, you, you end up seeing in, in the polls a sort of an excess of public support for intervention over what there might be. Um, and unfortunately, this is, doesn't seem to be correctable. And so at the end of the day, that's why I have to call the public reasonably restrained. If the president is a restrainer, I think you have pretty good odds. If the president isn't, then I think, yeah, who knows? But um, things are gonna get better. So to bring things home, I'll make two observations. One of which is pretty obvious, and one of which is not yet very obvious, but I think will get more obvious over time. The obvious is that um, the number of Americans expressing support for restraint in various ways that we see through the polls especially is larger today than it's ever been pretty much. And I think there are a lot of reasons for this. As I said, public displeasure with sort of mucking about for nebulous gains in the Middle East at high cost is got to be the first reason. Um, but I think that this election campaign so far has shown that there's another important reason, uh, and that is unhappiness and uncertainty about what's going on in the U.S., whether it's uh, economic issues, you know, income inequality, or is it social issues? I, I think there's a lot of f- ferment and... and Uh, if that's a technical term in the American public right now. And I think that um, there's been research to show that during tough economic times, Americans tend to prefer more introverted uh, foreign policies. I think another piece that um, is sort of evident during uh, the election is the increased partisan polarization in America. So we have now increasing numbers of Democrats and Republicans who will oppose anything a president from the other party does regardless of what it is, and so what that means is, whenever a president does anything in foreign policy, you have a huge bunch of people who just say no. So the weird, you see this weird thing in the polling now, where for the first time ever in history, more Republicans than Democrats say the U.S. should mind its own business internationally, <laughs> and it's all down to thanks Obama, right? That's all. That's the sole reason. There's no good thinking behind it. this. It's just knee-jerk partyism, as far as I can tell, and so that that's definitely depressed. The public appetite for going and doing things, because no one can agree on who we think should go do it. So that's the obvious stuff. Um, and I think some of that explains why Trump has done reasonably well, despite being Trump. The less obvious reason that this is, uh, that there's faint constituency, or I would call it the faint coalition, that the people who are both sort of categorical but also the group of contingent restrainers at any one time. The Restraint Coalition is bigger than ever today because of the coming of age of the millennials who have all just finally sort of turned 18. They're now the biggest generation of Americans alive. Uh, and I mentioned before that restrainers are more likely to be young uh, than non-restrainers and this is true in a very big way. So if you look at the top set of bars there, uh, millennials are the lighter bar. They are the far more likely than older Americans to be Restrainers, and you can see that they, in fact, pass the magic number of 50%. The restraint constituency is a majority among millennials. Um, This is not just a um, result of the fact that millennials tend to be more liberal, um, which they do, uh, or the fact that they tend to claim that they're independents rather than Republicans or Democrats, which they do, both things which push them towards restraint. But it turns out that millennial Republicans are also about twice as likely to be restrainers as older Americans. So it's not just a party thing. And so then, to end my talk on a relatively high note, uh, I would say that even though this election maybe doesn't look so good uh, from the major party candidates anyway, who I don't think of as in Hillary's case at all restraint friendly, and in Trump's case, not reliably restraint friendly, if you can even characterize what he's saying. Um, But the good news is that in the long run, we here in this room are not the only people interested in greater restraint in foreign policy. The restraint um, constituency of the future is large and eventually it will be in charge. So thank you very much.
0: Thank you all. All right, so I, uh, I did write down some comments, but I mo- we only have about 10 minutes for Q&A and um, I'm just going to make one point, and then I'm going to open it up to Q&A, uh, because uh, and mainly I'm making this point because I brought a prop. So, so Will and Ed's book, uh, paper, papers, are, are or should be in response to this book, Dangerous Nation. And, and Will referenced Robert Kagan on, on a number of occasions. And I think there are opportunities for Ed to do so as well, because the reason is, is simple. Um, as a historian, I believe in the value of history for history's sake. I don't, I don't, I don't believe that it has to have uh, a kind of instrumental uses, and yet the, the extent to which Robert Kagan went to craft a narrative of U.S. foreign policy around his premise— which is the only reason that for the first 100 and f- more than 100 years of American history, the only reason why the United States did not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy was because it was too weak. And the moment at which it became strong enough to go abroad in search of monsters to destroy, then it did. And by, by crafting the narrative this way, he writes out of the history of the founding period, the notion of restraining the power of the state, which is what the Federalists did, the Anti-Federalists wanted them to do it more, but to write out of the history of the drafting of the Constitution and the forming of the Federal Republic is to ignore a huge body of literature, okay? And I think that Will gets a good start on it in terms of challenging this narrative, and there's an opportunity for Ed to do so as well. And I want to second what uh, Ed, in particular, there is a reason why of the short uh, readings that the U- the the Defense and Foreign Policy Department here at Cato recommends, uh, one of those readings is Washington's farewell address, and the other ur er text of restraint is in fact John Quincy Adams' July Fourth, eighteen twenty one address, which uh, I also commend to you. But compare those passages which Ed read to just two, and then I'll open it up to questions. So here's a passage from Crystal and Kagan's essay uh, toward a neo-Reaganite foreign policy. And it was critical because they they were actually quite critical of conservatives at the time. Conservatives hark back to the admonition of John Quincy Adams that America ought not go abroad in search of monsters to destroy. But why not? The alternative is to leave monsters on the loose ravaging and pillaging to their heart's content as Americans stand by and watch. What may have been wise counsel in 1823, they get the date wrong, when America was a small isolated power in a world of European giants, is no longer so when America is the giant. Because America has the capacity to contain or destroy many of the world's monsters, most of which can be found without much searching And because the responsibility for the peace and security of the international order rests so heavily on America's shoulders, a policy of sitting atop a hill and leading by example becomes in practice a policy of cowardice and dishonor. So this is the stark contrast, okay? Between leading by example, between restraining one's impulse to wage war, and cowardice and dishonor and so the fact that they go to such great lengths to try to seize back the historical narrative that sense suggests to me and and, uh, Trevor alluded to this is they sense the importance of connecting their vision of foreign policy through Teddy Roosevelt interestingly that's a critical uh, sort of juncture there uh, into the modern era So I commend the papers, Uh, I commend those two essays, and then uh, I mostly want to have time for Q&A from the audience. So uh, raise your hand, wait for the microphone, uh, ask a question, make it quick, because we only have about, um, I'm saying 10 minutes, which means I'll cut in to your uh, beverage or break time. Uh, There on the aisle right there, yes, sir, go ahead. And then uh, you, sir, right there. So we'll take two questions real quick together. Go ahead, sir, go ahead.
3: I agree that Kagan's a nut, but I noticed that you guys have left out the first and second world wars and the Cold War in your analysis of U.S. foreign policy. And I believe that there's something to be said that the Washington, Hamilton, John Quincy Adams, Lincoln tradition uh, was as much about making America a great power that could compete with great powers for the interest of preserving American liberty as it was about keeping those great powers away.
0: Okay. I would like
3: to know your thoughts on that. Okay.
0: Good intervention there. And then go ahead, sir. Wait for the microphone. Yes, sir. Go ahead.
2: I, I com- my comment was, it seems to me you've skated over a uh, period from 1830 to 1898 when they intervened in Texas, uh, Mexico, uh, Cuba, uh, Colombia, uh, and right. multiple other places. All in, and and right. so and- all in the Western Hemisphere, right. Uh, so all
0: in the Western Hemisphere. Both Will and Ed address those uh, separately. So go ahead. On
2: the, uh, I mean, we see in both cases is by American leaders who correctly saw the world as being... Yes, yeah, yeah, go ahead, Ed. Live in to try to uh, change the world, that we couldn't live in a balance of power world, we couldn't interact with that, so we had to change the balance of power world into a different kind of liberal order. Um, On the 1830 to 1898 period, it's in the logic of uh, the Monroe Doctrine that the United States needed to preemptively expand to prevent the export of the European system to America. That was aggressive foreign policy, but it was consistent because its goal was to prevent us from being dragged into the European system.
1: And I would just add that that's why pain is so important here and others, because they're really saying that there's a difference between this new world where you could have a novus ordo seclorum and a kind of older, corrupted world and uh, a and, and sense that we want to create this asylum that needs to be big— Uh, Right. We're going to expand the American system, uh, both for our ideals and our prosperity, but also for our security. But we just want to have separateness from the rest of the world. And that's why the Monroe Doctrine, which I didn't mention, mostly because the Monroe Doctrine isn't as big a deal as we think in retrospect at the time. uh, But it does fit into this vision uh, that they were talking about.
0: Uh, uh, Right there. Uh, Go ahead. Right there. Yeah, Zach, go ahead. And then right there. Um, go ahead, Zach.
1: Um, so my questions for Dr. Rhodes. Um, so you lay out uh, Teddy Roosevelt's vision of restoring American virtue. And what immediately came to my mind was the vision laid out by Irving Babbitt, where he says that it's true that American virtue needs to be restored and maintained, but rather than going outward to do that, it should be done inward by focusing on self-control and, and building
2: personal responsibility. So I'm curious um, Mm -hmm. as to why you think Teddy Roosevelt's vision of restoring virtue won out over Irving Rabbits.
0: And then uh, right there, go ahead, man. Okay,
2: I have a question for Dr. Thrall, and you had talked about the president as sometimes being a deciding factor between pulling people who would normally be restrainers over to a particular action. Do you think there are also incentives in the foreign policy bureaucracy or the military or other parts of government that also pull the public towards the same end? All right, TR versus Babbitt. Uh, TR had great rhetoric. Um, I would also argue that TR wanted to do the internal transformation as well. I didn't talk about that, but for TR, the external transformation was also needed. Um, but that would take a, a deeper study. Why Roosevelt wins?
3: Yeah, and on the go ahead on the uh, question of you know are there other institutions than the president that inflate threats? Yes. See all other Cato conferences. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Literally, random walk through the Kato website. Um, <laughs> yes, and, and, you know, I mean, it's amazing the power of a person to believe a thing if their livelihood depends on it, um, quoting, I think, Mencken or someone Manken, anyway. yes. So, uh, you know, it's 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 not necessarily that they get a lot of airtime relative to other players. Like, the president sort of dominates the airwaves, but but there's a steady hum in this town of everywhere you turn, people are in favor of this current uh, consensus on liberal hegemony because it benefits their organization, bigger budgets, more toys, more freedom to do fun things, uh, career opportunities. Um, If your job benefits from it, it's hard not to support it.
0: Okay, one last question. I wanna add one
1: one thing, Trevor. I think you're right, because you're talking about the uh, bootleggers of, uh, but there are also Baptists, and, and, and that's important too. I mean, there are true believers in this, and in many ways, they're more dangerous. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, okay, right there in the middle of the back of the room, who can get there quickest? And then so and then one question there. So quick, right there. Yes, go ahead, man. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay. Go for it. Go ahead. Uh, for Dr. Thrall, I was wondering if you had seen any data on uh, previous generations
1: and whether they had started out as being more inclined towards restraint and then, say, as the greatest generation aged if they had ended up going more towards being interventionist over time. Uh, I would see sort of for the millennial generation, as we see more and more distance from the debacles of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war, uh, as well as maybe a progressive bent in this particular generation that might lead them more to the uh, responsibility to protect that we talked a bit about during lunch, uh, so sort of Samantha Powers type of progressivism. If you may see uh, a potential trend away from restraint in the millennial generation, even
0: though she's not a millennial. Go ahead. Yes, ma'am. yes my name is Juliet Adams, and you spoke on the American perspective on restraint in U.S. foreign policy. What is the perspective of the international community,
3: including the United Nations?
0: Okay, uh, Trevor Thurst, and then uh, you guys. Okay.
3: Um, Excellent question on millennial generation and others. Uh, I I wrote a white paper last summer about this that you can find on the Cato website, and my general working framework is this notion that um, sociologists have identified a critical period between the years of 14 and 24 years of age where uh, things you're exposed to then, world events and so on, have a kind of an outsized effect on how you think about the world, and those things are permanent. So for o- older people might experience the same thing, but it might be sort of a glancing blow. But for you, when you're sort of in that magical period, uh, open to new things, um, th- that really has a permanent effect on your thinking. Um, now, so, so on the one hand, millennials are, I think, always gonna be more restrained than other generations because of that. But on the other hand, your point about um, humanitarian intervention and responsibility to protect is an excellent one because I didn't get into this, but the one thing that millennials do actually support um, uh, is humanitarian intervention, so they're they're not as restrained as as they could be. Okay. Uh, any
0: comments on the international community and the law, international law?
1: I, I'm guessing it's going to be pretty mixed. I mean, there are a lot of places that would rather not have the you know this big elephant you know wandering around the world and and kind of toppling things over in the pursuit of of its interests or values. Um, on the other hand, there's lots of folks that want to be able to cheap ride, as Barry Posen talks about. Um, so, they like the fact that the United States is going to spend uh uh its blood and treasure for you know their interests. Uh, if you think about the European countries, for example i 'm sure that you know Poland and the Baltics are pretty excited about the fact that the United States has this primacist approach
0: all right that 's all the time we have for. Thank you all very much. We have a quick break. There will be uh beverages in the winter garden and uh restrooms. Uh, in the lower level uh, around to the right. Thank you all very much.